3: So are we ready to go? I think so. Okay, Jordan Weissman. Yes, I would like to introduce you to someone, which is yourself. Oh, from like nine or so months ago.
4: No, don't do that. This is gonna be this is gonna be brutal.
3: Jordan Weissman covers the economy for Slate.
4: I don't want to confront the the ghosts of economic predictions past. <laughs> please, please, anything but that.
3: He is pleading for mercy here. Because he knows exactly what I'm about to do. I'm going to make fun of him. So just at the scene, President Biden was about to pass his big stimulus bill. Yeah. And there was this concern at the time that if we passed a $2 trillion bill, it would overheat the economy. (laughs) Do you remember what you said to me when I asked you about that?
4: I think I said, I actually do remember this pretty well. I said that it would actually maybe be a good idea to try and overheat the economy just to see if we could even do it. That we had never really given this sucker a full (laughs) run. we had never really tried to rev this engine as hard as possible. And this might be the opportunity.
3: You did say that. You said it in a more colorful way, though. Did I? (laughs) You said, we actually should try to overheat the economy. (laughs) If the economy is only supposed to go in the microwave for, like, three minutes, we should really go over. We should be aiming for, like, five or six. (laughs)
4: Whoops. (laughs) We did it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Ding, ding. Burrito's done. When Jordan talked about overheating the economy back in February, it was kind of an admission that pumping money into people's pockets, it could backfire. Specifically, it could backfire by causing inflation. Nine months later, here we are.
0: When demand, dwarfs supply, and
4: supply chains are bottlenecked, prices explode. Inflation's peak surge in three decades. So... Obviously inflation has been a significant concern this year.
3: You know, we're paying more for just about everything right now from from cars and clothing to to food and gasoline. Consumers are getting squeezed. And- Inflation's higher than it's been in 30 years.
4: Yeah, we're we're back to early 90s levels of inflation. Yeah,
2: we're all coming out of hibernation as consumers at the same time. Consumers are spending more, there are supply shortages as a result of the pandemic. Does that freak
3: you
4: out? I'm not freaked, but it's obviously freaking out a lot of Americans, and that's causing some political complications.
0: That there may be something here more than transitory. I'm doing something that the central banks don't seem to be willing to countenance, and that is considering that some of this may
4: be permanent.
3: Today on the show. So did Biden stick the economy in the microwave for too long?
4: Maybe a little bit. The burrito is steaming. The plastic might have gotten a little <laughs> melted at this point. <laughs> you may or may not be happy with the results. But hey, we, we did it.
3: <laughs> Digesting the economy with Jordan Weissman. What inflation means and what it doesn't. <laughs> don't touch the burrito right now. Just, just don't touch it. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For a long time, Jordan Weissman has been resisting the panic about inflation. Because price increases he was seeing seemed to have simple explanations. Sure, cars were more expensive, but there was that microchip shortage. Furniture was in demand, but that seemed to be because so many people were at home a whole lot more gas prices went up. But, you know, gas prices are based on a whole bunch of other factors, some of which are the whims of an international cartel. Then this fall, Jordan watched prices creep up more generally across the board.
4: I've gotten a little bit more nervous about it over really the last two or three months, but it was really this last inflation report that I think freaked everybody out because it seemed like inflation had been cooling off a bit or at least leveling off and then just in October <laughs> essentially it just it spiked by like 0.9%, almost a full percentage point in a month which is just a lot. That that's a, that's a that's a big increase. For
3: reference the Fed's goal is 2% a year.
4: Yeah, its official goal is 2% in the course of an entire year. We're way past that point, but a 0.9% increase was kind of startling and the big argument this year hasn't been whether or not there would be any any extra inflation it's whether that inflation would be sort of a temporary thing or transitory as the federal reserve likes to say a momentary product of, of reopening the economy or if it would be persistent right if it would be something that might linger on and, and actually cause problems next year or the year after that and could, you know, give us a repeat of the 70s, perhaps. Th- th- this is the, the two sides of this argument. It's been described as team transitory versus team persistent, right? <laughs> and on one side of it, team persistent, you had Larry Summers, you know, the kind of gadfly former Treasury Secretary leading the charge, saying that we're going to have a lot of trouble here.
3: Almost everyone is experiencing a shortage of something. Almost every employer is having trouble finding uh, workers Those seem to me to be uh, the conditions for inflation to take a ratchet up.
4: Or, you know, team transitory. You have sort of Jerome Powell and the Fed. Really for us, what transitory has
0: meant is that if something is transitory, it will not leave behind it permanently
4: or or very persistently higher inflation.
0: So that's why we...
4: The tricky thing is when you say inflation is going to be transitory, right? That, That can mean a lot of different things. That could mean... Well, we're going to see a spike for six months, and then it's going to go away. Or it can mean we're going to see a spike for a year, and then it's going to go away. But the question is when. And that's harder to predict.
3: What I like about describing the current moment as overheating rather than just talking about inflation is that it acknowledges that the economy is actually in pretty good shape right now. Like it's hot. It's just maybe too hot. And what I mean by that is consumers are still spending a ton of money when when I read the numbers, it was kind of shocking. Like, consumers spent a record $638 million at stores and restaurants in October, which was up 21% from pre-pandemic levels. It's a lot.
4: Yeah, I mean, we're shopping too much, um, which is, like, not <laughs> not the worst problem to have in the world, but, like... Explain how this works.
3: Explain how it is that we're spending so much money, mm-hmm. and yet I feel like a bunch of people are left with the impression that the economy isn't so good and is maybe going the wrong direction.
4: So Americans are buying a lot of stuff, right? We are buying a tremendous amount of stuff. And I really want to put emphasis on stuff, right? That's one of the main things that happened after the pandemic was that people, not just in the United States, but the world over, shifted their spending from services to goods. Right. So instead of going out to eat, instead of going on vacation, you know, early on, they start buying Pelotons and fixing their porches and whatnot. And the stimulus may have given them the money to do that. Well, this, this had been sort of going on for a while, even before the American Rescue Plan. But around March of... This year, which is when the checks started going out Um, for like when the stimulus started going out, we saw just another big spike in spending and a big spike in spending on durables. And not coincidentally, that's around when we started seeing inflation really kind of take off in March and, and April. And a lot of that was being driven by used car prices. That was a major factor in in inflation, for instance, right? People were going to buy a new car or a new used car and there just weren't enough of them. This is one of the issues we've run into. People, you've heard so much this year about supply chains, right? The supply chain can't keep up. But In the end, a lot of what's driving those problems with the supply chains is actually just that we're buying more stuff than ever. And our infrastructure for shipping things and making things across the entire world just hasn't really been able to keep up. We've kind of swamped the system.
3: Especially after a pandemic where companies may have changed how they do business pretty radically.
4: Yeah. Some may have cut back on the size of their workforce or, you know, some factories in China may only be working at partial capacity, all all sorts of issues. But The bottom line is that we're just spending a lot of money on stuff and we've sort of overwhelmed our capacity to make stuff across the world. And it's it's not just affecting the United States. You're seeing it in in other countries too, but I would say inflation is probably it's a little bit worse in the US than it is in Europe. So we're doing this to ourselves? The bottom line is, yeah, that's and this is kind of the irony of the situation is that Americans are on this giant shopping spree. And what makes Americans happier than buying stuff? Nothing. We love buying stuff, except b- because we're buying so much stuff. The price of stuff is going up and that makes Americans <laughs> sad. And we're our own worst enemy. We're our own worst enemy. But then also beyond that prices are going up faster than wages overall. If you break it down, wages are still rising for people at the bottom of the income distribution, for lower earners, people who work in restaurants or work at hotels, faster than inflation. But for the middle class, wages aren't keeping up right now. And so that's probably ticking a lot of people off too. You know, There's a sense that their paycheck doesn't stretch necessarily as far as it did before. And they feel that every time they go to the grocery store or when they stop at the gas station.
3: I've wondered about that class difference a bit and how it's factoring into how people talk about the economy right now, because the lower 40 percent, their wages may be keeping up with inflation, maybe kind of fine, but other folks, not so much. And, you know, who's louder? Who gets more attention? Who are we seeing?
4: Yeah, we should be careful because we say like the lower 40 percent of Americans, that their wages are keeping up. You're talking about that sort of like overall. Right. If you look at individuals, it's not necessarily the case that, that their pay has kept up with, with prices. Like if you break it out by women or, or just like, you know, Joe down the street who may or may not have gotten a raise this year. On the whole, though, the lower working class is, is doing okay. Um, but it's sort of the middle, middle class that's getting really squeezed. And politically, that's a problem because the middle class votes. Right. Hmm. <laughs> and so that's, they're unhappy.
3: When I listen back to what you said in February when you were making the case for cranking up the heat on the economy, yeah, you said this interesting thing. Like you compared economic policy to weightlifting. Yeah. You said the only way you know your limits is to push them, which I thought was kind of interesting.
4: Yeah, well, we learned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're learning.
3: <laughs> you also said we've made the opposite mistake for so long now. Yeah. What did you mean by that?
4: So the, the consensus about the Great Recession is that we really underdid our response in 2008 and 2009, right? We just did not do enough to revive the economy. And so we had this long, slow, torturous recovery period where it took really until, really until like midway through the Trump era to get back to something approximating even close to full employment. Right, like, we—it's not even clear we had actually made it to full employment by the time uh, the coronavirus hit. But like, you know, the economy was depressed for a long time because we just did not have a, a, a vigorous enough response. I think a lot of people felt at the, at the beginning of this year that it was just unclear how far we could go and how far we could push the economy because it had been so long since we'd really tested our limits. There's this idea called hysteresis. Whoa, big word. Hysteresis—that like if the economy is depressed for long enough, it sort of becomes permanently depressed. People like never go back to work. People kind of lose skills. It's
3: like learned helplessness, but it's the economy.
4: exactly. And so the idea was like, okay, well, we, you know, it's it's best to kind of push our limits and see how far can we push the, the employment rate and things like that. The problem is that, we seem to have sort of overdone it before we've gotten everyone back to work. And I think that's also part of the sense of malaise right now, is that even though the job market's actually pretty good for anyone looking for a job, you know, we're still down millions of jobs from before uh, the pandemic began. And at the same time, we have inflation. And so that, that just adds this feeling that like, things are going awry, that they aren't as they should be. And that's yeah, it's adding to the sense of malaise.
3: More Humble Pie with Jordan Weissman after the break.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
3: The economy is overheated. But the way it's overheated is peculiar. It's not like the labor force is totally tapped out. There are still people who could go back to work and haven't. It's more that our demand for goods has outpaced our ability to produce those goods. And that has economists worried about something else, something Jordan Weissman doesn't even like to say out loud. The fear of every economist is that we enter something called a wage-price spiral.
4: Oh, which... yeah. Which... Yeah, uh, <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: That's what fear sounds like. Yeah.
4: I mean, like, there's some people talking about that right now. I don't think we're there yet.
3: I mean, Jerome Powell has explicitly said, yeah. we're not there yet. Lots yeah. of people are saying, we're not there yet. But it does seem like this looming... Horizon thing.
4: I should probably get out of the predictions business before you lord this over me. <laughs> but okay, so first, a wage-price spiral. Just for for the listeners at home, is exactly what it sounds like. Wages go up, prices go up. Workers in respond demand higher wages because prices keep going up. The thing about that is, they became a big concern in the seventies when you had like a much more unionized workforce. And and workers had sort of automatic cost of living adjustments baked into their contracts.
3: Yeah. They would have these contracts that would like respond
4: to inflation. Right. And like people were very aware of that at the time. And that's just like not really an issue today. Because so few people are unionized. So few people are unionized. People don't typically have like automatic cost of living increases like baked into their terms of employment. So you could sort of see it happening with lower wage workers, because businesses have to compete so hard to, to hire, you could kind of see it in that, in that part of the labor market. But I personally just find it hard to believe that we're heading for like a, a sustained wage price spiral, even though that is something that I, I've, people have started murmuring about because wages are rising and prices are rising, at least for the moment.
3: Well, how would we get out of a spiral like that? Is that part of the fear around it?
4: Well, so in the seventies, what they did is they crashed the economy. Or in the eighties, like, that's Paul Volcker just like you know raised interest rates sky high and plunged the U.S. into a very sharp, albeit brief recession, a notorious double dip recession in the early nineteen eighties. That is pretty much how he broke inflation or tamed inflation.
3: So the solution to inflation is to open up a fire hose on it, but that doesn't sound like a great plan.
4: Well, no. And and that's why the whole argument, about whether this is something persistent we have to worry about or temporary is so important, right? Because if we're really at the beginning of like something persistent and like there is some kind of wage price spiral waiting to happen, then yeah, you, you kind of want the Federal Reserve to really step in and, and do something about it. But if it is just the economy working out its kinks after the pandemic, or at least after opening up from the pandemic and like Eventually, all this is going to kind of fade on its own, then you probably shouldn't, you know, force the country through an economic collapse to do that. You should just, you should just sort of grin and bear it through this brief, unpleasant period of rising prices and allow things to settle. I think a lot of people at this point are kind of looking for a middle ground.
3: But so they're not going to raise interest rates, they're going to just rein other things in before they get to that.
4: Yeah. So we're at kind of step one. The Fed is going to soon start winding down its big bond buying program, that it was sort of one of the things it was doing to sort of support the economy. And then next year, it's quite possible they're going to be talking about interest rate hikes, but not for a while.
3: So you're really talking about a kind of slow and steady approach here, which seems like a good idea. But it seems to me like the one person who doesn't have a lot of time here is Joe Biden, because he's steering down the 2022 midterms. And there's all this agita about the quote unquote economy.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's unclear how bad the situation is for Biden, too, because um, like here's here's one of the big questions about politics of inflation is how much are people really upset about inflation and how much are they really mostly upset about gas and food prices, right? Because those are sort of like the two most visible parts of it that hit people in the pocketbook every single week. And Data for Progress, which is one of our, our favorite think tanks <laughs> here at Slate.com. <laughs> the royal we. Yeah. <laughs> Did They put up this, this funny chart where they found just that like Biden's approval rating right now, changes in his approval rating correlate like 96% with like just changes in gas prices. It's almost one for one. It's actually remarkable when you look at it. like Especially if you take out the effect of Afghanistan, then it's just like one for one. And so if really the thing that people are mostly pissed off about is the price of fueling up their car, that's actually probably a good thing for Biden. Why? Well, for one, it looks like oil prices are already going down a bit. Thanks. Partly, it seems to something Biden's doing right now. He's quietly been encouraging other countries to release their own sort of strategic reserves. And the US is already doing that itself to try and put more supply onto the global market. And then at the same time, it looks like even though they've been slow to do it, US shale drillers are beginning to rev up production a little bit too. Um, they were kind of sitting back and enjoying just raking in their profits, which is sort of unusual for them. Shale drillers have often lost money in, in the recent decades, but they've been making a lot recently. And finally, they've decided it might be a good time to kind of drill for more oil. And so there's a sense that you could see a lot more supply come on the line soon. And if that drives down oil prices, and that's going to drive down gas prices. And so, next year, you might actually see gas prices fall a bit.
3: Did the Biden administration do something wrong here to find themselves in this situation?
4: That's this is we're going to be debating this for years to come. Um, I do think it's pretty clear. I, I, I'm not sure anybody would disagree at this point that the checks, the stimmies, probably have contributed to the situation we are now in. Yeah, that's separate from the political or, or moral question of whether or not it was worth it. But if, if you're asking the more narrow question of whether or not anything the Biden administration did has contributed to the issues we're now dealing with inflation, yeah, probably at least, at least a bit and probably quite a bit in some senses.
3: In addition to getting in there with the oil and gas prices, making sure that supply is opened up, what else can Joe Biden do to try to move the needle when it comes to inflation? And is he doing
4: it? So like, you know, you talk about like ways to control inflation. Like like one, one the classic way is through monetary policy. You raise interest rates and you try to cool the economy a bit um, and just reduce demand. And that and that takes some pressure off of prices. That's, that's up to the Federal Reserve. Um, another thing you can do is through fiscal policy. You could try to raise taxes to reduce inflation. You know, I don't think a lot of people love that idea. However, there is actually one, option that's sort of akin to that available to the Biden administration right now. And I hate to say it, but he could just make people pay their student loans again. Right now, they're on pause. And frankly, I think politically, it would be a good idea just to keep them on pause for as long as possible. But before the pandemic, the federal government was collecting like $70 billion a year in student loan payments. That's a fairly substantial tax, right? that's one thing he could do to suck some money out of the economy. I don't know if politically, like that's, that's really worth it. In theory, people are supposed to go back to paying them sometime soon. So, Hmm. you know, they, they can try to fiddle with on the edges of the supply chains, but in the end, I don't know that there really is a ton he can do. They have tried to pitch the build back better act as a way to deal with inflation by bringing down the cost of like childcare and healthcare and whatnot, and kind of household expenses, but that's like, re- I mean, that's not near-term. That's all really long-term stuff. I don't think it's really that believable. Um, so in the near-term, no, there isn't like a ton he can really do. Uh, this, is, this is something that's more in the hands of the Fed. Listening
3: to you back in February, so eager to hit the gas on the economy, you sounded blissful. Yep. What would you say to that guy now, with the benefit of hindsight?
4: And the benefit of hindsight, I guess if, if I could talk to myself back in February, I, I would say that a little bit more circumspection might be necessary. I feel like everything I'm saying on this episode is just, you know, it's all comes with the asterisk that I'm still working it through it in my head. And I haven't quite like, come <laughs> to final conclusions about any of it.
3: Jordan Weisman, thank you so much for joining me.
4: Thanks. Thanks.
3: Jordan Weissman is a senior editor at Slate. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Daniel Hewitt, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery, and I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. This was a fun one. Yeah. More quoting Jordan to Jordan.
4: Oh, brutal. Brutal.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th.